Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Arab philosopher and statesman Ibn Khaldun wrote a book several centuries ago known in English as the Mukaddima, an introduction to world history. It has long been celebrated as an approach to understanding the rise and fall of societies across time. What is the Mukaddima? How useful is it in understanding the course of human history? And what does it tell us about life and politics in the Middle East and in the larger world in the past and today? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. To discuss the work of Ibn Khaldun, we are fortunate to have with us today Aziz Alazme, who is University Pre- Professor Emeritus and Distinguished Visiting Professor at the Central European University, now in Vienna. He taught previously at the University of Exeter in the UK and at the American University of Beirut and has held visiting professorships at Georgetown, Columbia, Yale, and the University of California, Berkeley the Aga Khan University, and the Institut d'Etudes Politiques, that is Sciences Po, in Paris. Among his books to appear in English are Ibn Khaldun, an essay in the reinterpretation, Muslim Kingship, Power and the Sacred in Muslim, Christian, and Pagan Polities, and the Emergence of Islam in Late Antiquity. And he's simply one of the few people I know who really know this work. Uh, and I want to thank uh, Aziz Al-Azmi for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation. Great to have you. So since this is a relatively unfamiliar name, uh, I, I think we should probably start at the beginning and talk a little bit about you know who exactly he was. He was born basically into the world of the Black Death, at least in Europe, uh, not where he was from. He was from Tunis. Uh, but maybe you could tell, uh, begin by telling us a little bit about who he was and, you know, what he did in his life aside from right. his book. Yes, yes, by, by, by all means, by all means. You know, apropos being a, an unfamiliar name, um, in, in, in my personal experience, most people with a reasonable degree of literacy had generally uh, heard of him or, uh, uh, or were surprised that they hadn't when, when, when told about him. Um, uh, he, he's, uh, he, this particular book, or certain, it's a large book, but certain sections from it have generally been taught in, uh, in civilization sequence, uh, courses, uh, uh Columbia style, uh, be it at Columbia or at many other universities, uh, worldwide. 
Um, it's Ibn uh, Khaldun himself was a was a uh, a statesman, but really an itinerant statesman. He'd had a uh, a life which uh, spanned many countries: the whole of North Africa, Spain, Egypt, and Syria in the 14th century. In the course of the 14th century, uh, with a life that was marked in his early youth by uh, marked with the death of his parents due to the to the plague. That of 1830, of the 18, of the 1330s, I'm sorry. Um, he spent his life moving from court to court, playing courtier. He was highly capable. Um, he seems to have had a difficult personality and to have been given to intrigues. As a result of which he did not really last long in any of the, uh, of the courts, uh, that he served. Uh, he spent the second half of his life, uh, in Cairo as a judge and a scholar. Um, and uh, towards the end of his life, he had a very interesting uh, encounter with Tamerlane uh, at the gates of Damascus when Tamerlane was besieging the city. And he has left us in his autobiography a very interesting account of that particular encounter, of the meeting, of the kinds of uh, topics that they had discussed, of the idea that Tamerlane uh, may have been predicted by the uh, by the movements of the stars and that his, uh, uh, his coming had been expected by quite a number of others, a kind of political eschatology which, uh, which was quite current at, his, uh, at that particular time. So much, for his, uh, so much for his life. So a life which was uh, very busy, highly charged, very interesting, with tremendous experience, hands down experience in politics as an advisor to kings, and particularly in North Africa as a person charged with raising armies. And as you may well know, those who are charged with, ga- with raising armies usually um, obtain a, a degree of insight into the, uh, into the sinews of, uh, of any of political movements which others do not necessarily have. At one point in his life, um, when he was in, in his 30s, as a matter of fact, when he had uh, need to disappear for a little while, put his head down, he went and sat in a, in a in an oasis in what is today Algeria, and composed the first draft of the Muqaddimah virtually out of his head, without access to libraries. Um, he was a man of enormous erudition. It is really difficult to think of any, of any branch of knowledge which was cultivated at that time to which he did not have, uh, uh, a very, cl- with which he had not had very close acquaintance. Be it, uh, medicine, um, philosophy, theology, jurisprudence, literary criticism, linguistics, and so on and so forth, not to speak of the occult sciences, which were really very important for that time, astrology, alchemy, letter magic, and a number of uh, associated uh, disciplines, which he uh, sketches very, very, with with a lot of detail uh, in his Muqaddimah. Now, the Muqaddimah started off as a kind of, uh, Muqaddimah actually in Arabic literally means a preface or an introduction or a prefatory discourse, right? It was supposed to be a book that described certain regularities that occur in history, things that have to do with the formation of political communities, with the formation of states, with the atrophy of states, um, with the dissolution of states, with the corruption of states and political systems. And, and And that was supposed to be a kind of a key to assessing the variety of uh, historical information to which he had had access. His main purpose being, as he said at that time, to write a history of North Africa and to write a history of the two main peoples who were active in North Africa, namely Arabs and Berbers.
Um, and to that end, he composed a book which starts with a discussion of historical methods, of the way in which historical material, uh, historical sources, may be uh, may contain truths and falsehoods, and why and in what way, hmm, and through what kind of agency. Uh, he then followed this with a very very long dissertation on the formation of societies, human societies, then the formation of political societies, the transformation of particular peoples into state-making units, then the formation of states, the dynamics of state formation, and a kind of natural life cycle of a state once it is established, and the way in which states then disintegrate as if by force of nature, and decline as if by force of nature. And the discussion is might be called sociological, it might also be called political, but it is also economic, because he does discuss the way in which states manage economies, the way in which markets work, the way in which sovereigns try to influence market conditions. So we have that, and then at, towards the end of it, about a third of the book is devoted to culture, because he thinks of culture, from his perspective, as actually essentially a craft. Culture is a craft. And the various disciplines that occur in a given culture, be it philosophy or carpentry, are all equally crafts because they have social bearings. And they work as crafts, that is to say, with the acquisition of skills. Hence, he gets into a quite a detailed uh, discussion about education and the way in which skills are imparted upon students, be they studying theology or medicine or any of the artisanal uh, uh, artisanal professions that were at that time available. That really yes, is, in sum, quite that is really in sum the in, in summary the uh, the overall picture. Yes, I mean, and it's a fascinating book um, that you know both refers to and reminds me at least of you know Aristotle's politics. And of course, it's been you know, long known that the Arabs were crucial to transmitting uh, the cl the culture of ancient classical Greece. <clears throat> excuse me to to us, you know, moderns. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about his relationship to that culture and the extent to which we might see him as kind of a bridging uh, person, you know, between that world and ours. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that it's a, it's a, he's, a bridging, he's a bridging person because the curious thing about him is that uh, when he died, there was very little reception of his work, very little reception of his work until the 19th century. Um, except, except for one particular aspect, you see, some passages in the Muqaddimah might be taken as, uh, might be taken as books of advice, of political advice. Fürstenspiegel type of, uh, uh, attitudes. The Ottomans in the 17th century translated, had the book translated into Turkish and thought of it as a kind of manual of statecraft, right? Which in fact it is not. But anyway, that is the way they understood it. That apart, to address the question that you uh, that you asked me, he he was very well uh, versed in Aristotelian philosophy, particularly by way of Avicenna, Ibn Sina in Arabic, yeah, whom he had read very very carefully indeed. And the way in which Aristotle is present in the Muqaddimah is in the overarching 
concepts that structure his arguments. Potentiality, actuality, the notion of nature, the notion of nature as a predetermined form of movement over time. Some of these, uh, uh, the, no- the, the notion of substance and the notion of essence, these are really implicit in the main concepts that he generated. So he actually structured his arguments in terms of Aristotelian natural philosophy. And he compared the state, or he conceived the state on analogy with natural bodies conceived in medical terms, which contain quite a lot of the Aristotelian physical input as transmitted by or developed by Avicenna, right? So it's, it's really quite an extraordinary feat to use philosophical concepts in a, in a context uh, to which they were not normally, with which they were not normally associated. And that is one of the, uh, uh, of the very, very interesting twists if one were to read the book really carefully and look at the structure of arguments and at the logic according to which the natural life cycle of the state works. So the idea of organic analogies is really quite crucial uh, there into the, to the, uh, to, to, to understanding uh, the thought of uh, uh, of Ibn Khaldun. Uh, the book is also philosophically very uh, very well informed. There is a large chapter on philosophy, uh, particularly on Arabic philosophy. There's a little bit about Aristotle, but mainly about Avicenna and Al-Farabi, and m- much less than one would think about uh, would think he would have written about Averroes Ibn Rushd. But he was uh, really very much in command of the discipline which he was able to use very creatively. Fascinating. Um, I mean, I, I guess I've always sort of understood the book uh, in some ways as organized around this notion of, I, I'm going to mispronounce it, but Asabia. Yes. Um, which I think could be, you know, satisfactorily translated into English as solidarity or something like that. And so in, in that sense, there does seem to be a kind of at least anticipation of some of the central ideas of, of Emile Durkheim and his concern, which I think centrally was about the idea of solidarity in human societies, where it comes from, how it changes, etc. Um, and it seemed to me that, you know, Ibn Khaldun was also very much concerned with the extent to which different kinds of societies could generate, you know, the asabiya that was necessary for their continuation and success. So yes. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Of idea. course, of course. Um, Asabiya is quite often uh, translated as uh, corporate solidarity or the solidarity of a group um, uh, usually understood as a sentiment. Of course, Asabiya is a sentiment, but Asabiya also designates a power group, a power group which is welded by an internal cohesion and internal loyalties. So Asabiya is, in essence, as he says, comparable to a genealogical relationship, to a family relationship. It doesn't have to be an actual family, but it acts as if, or it functions as if it were a family. That is what an Asabiya is. So the power of a state is actually obtained by an Asabiya, which then manages to overpower others and come on top and then found a dynasty. Once a dynasty is founded, then another type of process enters. There's a, there's a, 
there's a phase of uh, prosperity and expansion, followed by a longer phase of decline and obsolescence, and the replacement of one power group by another. So Asabiya is really a power group, not simply a sense of solidarity. It's a power group which is also internally animated by a feeling of solidarity, which is analogous to the solidarity among members of a family. That is how uh, it functions. Now, there is imperial, there is empirical purchase to this, very clearly empirical purchase to this, and many of the developments of the long passages in the book which talks about Asabiya and the way it acts in a state and founds a state and uh, um, and uh, and uh, transforms itself in the process of uh, in the process of rule are uh, sustained by very clear reference to empirical material. Material, things that he had seen and witnessed himself, and what the histories that he read had told him about the way in which states had been founded. Now, the the issue of um, he being an anticipator of sociological ideas is a very common one. Uh, much of the 19th century scholarship talks about his affinity to quite a number of uh, to quite a number of thinkers of course you mentioned Durkheim that is certainly the case with the idea of solidarity but also Ferdinand Tönnies right of uh, community and uh, community and society for instance that uh, that type of change that occurs uh, under particular circumstances this has been this has been suggested many times there are many uh, comparisons that have been made with uh, historians such as Herodotus or Thucydides, the idea of a pragmatic history, right? Uh, there have been comparisons with Machiavelli, comparisons with Vico, comparisons with Durkheim, comparisons with Hippolytan, quite a number of things. And, and, of course, comparisons with late 19th century German theories of the state, of the power state, right? Um, and theories of the elites and elite transformation and elite formation and so on. Now, these... Um, to my mind, there is always a certain anachronism there. Bringing uh, a 14th century, a, a body of 14th century ideas and comparing them with uh, ideas that emerge several centuries later is, to my mind, in principle, a little bit difficult. One can certainly, one can certainly present quite a number of analogies. Whether that amounts to precedence is another matter. Um, there cannot be precedents because there is no line of transmission between Ibn Khaldun and, let us say, Durkheim, right? Um, or Ferdinand Tönnies, um, or Gumplowitz with the theory of the state. There is no particular line of uh, filiation, as it were. There is no line of filiation. So the idea of an abstract anticipation in a previous age is fair enough. That can be said of Ibn Khaldun. It can be said of many others. Um, and incidentally, I, um, I, I, from time to time, I do give students, uh, graduate students, a, a reading course of the Muqaddimah, where we read, when we read the various extracts from it. And uh, I usually ask them to pick one particular thinker and see if there might be any meaningful comparisons with Ibn Khaldun. And I've had many, uh, I've had many, uh, many suggestions, and I've, many papers have been written. Um, John of Salisbury, Rousseau, uh, and really, and Thucydides, and quite a number of others. And there is literature on all of these things. The literature on Ibn Khaldun is vast. There's a huge literature on him, uh, starting from the 19th century, 
and particularly in the 20th, is very rich. Quite often you will find that these comparisons are fairly approximate and, uh, and, and not very professionally done. But sometimes you will find a certain effort at, uh, at highlighting conceptual analogies which really do work. Now, what the value of these comparisons is, I'm, I'm still not entirely certain. What, 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 would the value, what would the value be of a comparison between a certain concept of the 19th century regarding society and something which may bear, bear certain similarities to it uh, 500 years earlier. I really sure. don't really see the... I don't see where, would the, where, where this would take us. I understand. Um, but, I mean, you know, the way you've described him and the way I uh, also understood him is, as you say, as somebody who could be seen as, you know, a political thinker or somebody who could be seen as a social thinker or uh, an economic thinker. I mean, and you find all of these elements, it seems to me, in uh, Aristotle's politics, notwithstanding the name. Yes. Um, the, the, the title, you know, that it's been given in, uh, you know, in English. Um, you know, it, can, it includes all of these things. It also includes military organization, the idea of citizenship, uh, how you should, oh, yes, organize, how you should organize cities, uh, all these, all these issues about human life. And, you know, in that sense, you know, neither, neither Aristotle nor, uh, Ibn Khaldun, you know, anticipates today in the sense that, um, they were sort of universal thinkers. I mean, about human life and its organization very, very broadly. And, you know, the, if Weber is right that the modern world is really about specialization, you know, they don't fit into it. Um, but, but I do see, you know, a sort of significant, you know, continuity or whatever inheritance, yes. uh, from Aristotle to Ibn Khaldun. But th- this then raises the question of, you know, the extent to which, uh, the Mukaddima is, you know, speaks to our world as opposed to primarily the Middle East. In other words, not a historical, but a kind of comparative dimension or question here. And, you know, one of the things that struck me about the book is the kind of uh, argument that he makes, if I understood it correctly again, about um, the way in which, you know, nomadic desert societies are sort of tough uh, because they have to be and sedentary societies are on the road to, you know, decline. I mean, it's a kind of a, a argument, I suppose, we've seen, you know, over the centuries in the past. Uh, and to some degree, I suppose, in the present. But it, it speaks to, you know, a set of concerns, which in some ways we've transcended, I suppose, by our, you know, relative control over the environment and that sort of thing. So I wonder whether, you know, to what extent would you say this book, you know, really kind of is relevant to our world or is yes, it really yes. particularly relevant to a particular part of the world and perhaps a particular time yes. in that world? It's, it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting question. Let me, let me see how, how best to, I mean, one can speak about this for, uh, uh, at, at very great length. But let, let me see what the best economy of, uh, of the answer might be. First of all, just, um, one comment on Aristotle, whom you've evoked, uh, several times. Ibn Khaldun does have a very rough theory of political forms. Aristotle was preoccupied with the forms of polity much more directly than uh, than Ibn Khaldun, uh, and with the transitions between various forms of uh, of political organization, um, with a certain prescriptive preference 
right? What that one uh, does find uh, in Aristotle. This one does not find this in uh, Ibn Khaldun. His only, the only typology he uh, he offers is one between political political systems based either in reason or in revelation, which are to the for the public good uh, and which uh, which uh, are mindful of the common weal and the arbitrary rule of uh, irrational kings and princes, uh, which are destructive of the social fabric and destructive of the dynasty in which they rule. That is the only typology. It's a fecund one. It's an interesting one, uh, but it's not directly pertinent to your question, but it's an important prefatory point. Now, the way in which he speaks to the modern world is various. There is, on the one hand, this idea of, uh, and this is a very common idea, it's not uh, specific to him, but it does come through with him with, with, uh, with peculiar elegance, with particular elegance um, and force, the idea of the softness of civilization. People in a more primitive condition are tougher, healthier, and more moral than those who have been corrupted by ease and by plenty and by the exercise of unlimited authority over others. Um, this, is a, this is a very, very common theme throughout the book, from the beginning to the end, in a variety of contexts. So the idea of a kind of primitive idyll of a uh, human society which is content with what it has and with the limitations of what it possesses and of what it can dispose is a mark of... Uh, Great admiration. But then there is added upon this a certain tragic attitude that these will in time or with time transform themselves into forms of rule. They will make themselves into dynasty, dynasties or subsidiary dynasties and they will enter into a logic of corruption. So the idea of generation and corruption, the Aristotelian idea is very much present also in this uh, disquisition on uh, on the nobility of the primitive and the softness and ignoble character of those who have had uh, who have had uh, times of prosperity so there is that particular sentiment and it's a particular sentiment which might actually speak to some of our friends who have uh, greater who who have uh, direct and continuous concern with issues of sustainability with issues of environmental justice or justice to the environment as it were might have he would also speak to us on the very on the ubiquitous thesis of the way in which power corrupts the actual exercise of political power corrupts Right? Lord Acton's famous dictum of the 19th century, power corrupts in absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Um, is very much in, uh, in, uh, in the same spirit, um, as the overall structure of Ibn Khaldun's arguments about the structure of states and the constitution of states and the inevitable atrophy of states as well. So he really does speak to us in a variety of ways. The detailed arguments about the ways in which solidarity groups behave in a city, uh, the way in which competition, as economists would say, competition is distorted with the intervention of the state in, uh, in commercial activities, the idea of the debasement of currencies and the way in which currencies might be debased 
by deliberate or indeliberate action by state authorities in a given situation. These are all things that speak to us and speak to us very directly, actually. Most importantly to my mind, the Muqaddimah is simply a stupendously important book. It's a great book. It's written very beautifully. Incidentally, I'm afraid that the, the standard English translation really doesn't come to, doesn't come up to the standard of the original work, uh, which, whose language is limpid, elegant, highly metaphorical, fairly complex, yet clear. Um, the, the translation is very elementary with uh, indications that much of the subtlety of the original is actually lost in the English translation, unfortunately. So there's quite a lot of, uh, uh, quite a lot of distortion, including the overall use of the word nomadic. Because uh, Badawa to Ibn Khaldun is not simply nomadism. It's all, uh, it refers to all forms of life outside cities. So villages, agricultural communities, not only nomadic peoples, transhuman, but all non-urban forms of social organization, he calls Badawa, which the English translation conveys as nomadism and nomads, which is really quite a, uh, um, it's, uh, it's cognitively very dissonant, if one knew the original, yeah? All right, got it. So um, I wonder, you know, you've talked a bit uh, in the course of our discussion about uh, the reception of the book and, um, you know, the question whether it's known or, or well-known or not. Uh, and I wonder if you could say a little bit about, you know, your understanding of where it is, you know, currently being read and where it isn't and, you know, what are the chances that in those places it isn't being read that it might be again. Well, I mean, my, my, I mean, first of all, uh, there are a number of books which I personally regard as, as fundamental for the, uh, for a certain conditions, a certain condition of literacy, right? Um, and this would include the Muqaddimah. It will also include Herodotus. It will include quite a number. It will also include Machiavelli. And really quite a number of books which are very well known and very wide, very widely known, little read. Uh, there are books which are often mentioned, authors who are often mentioned, but not usually read or read with sufficient attention and, uh, uh, and, and deliberation. Uh, so uh, it belongs to a pantheon of books that must be read by literate persons. That's as far as I'm concerned. That's number one. Secondly, uh, all histories of historiography will need to involve a reading of certain passages. All histories of the social sciences need to include some of its chapters. All histories of political thought need to include some of its thought. And I, I mean, some universities have courses in all of these fields in which students do read one or more chapters of the Muqaddimah or even less than one chapter. It's a very long book. And certainly, of course, anybody who's interested in the history of the Middle East needs to read this book because it is very telling in a variety of ways. It's astonishingly rich, really, astonishingly rich and very suggestive. Uh, I personally, I wrote, I wrote a doctoral thesis on Ibn Khaldun's reception, actually. That was my doctoral thesis. After which I wrote a book about him, a reinterpretation. That's 40 years ago, nearly, nearly now. But I come back and read the book through, uh, every now and then I dip into it. Every three or four years I read it through because it is really, it's such a delight, I must say. 
it's a delight to be in the company of a of an author who is so intelligent, so keen, and so very perceptive, and covers so many so much ground as well. But well, you and I agree about the you know significance and, and appeal of the book. Uh, but as I say, uh, you know, concretely, where where is he known? Where is it read? And uh, where is it not being read? That it might well, be? it's read as far as I know. It is read in 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 courses uh, in university courses on the Middle East, on the history of the Middle East, particularly, right? Not as a main not as a main component, but it's often offered as an optional course in courses about the history of the Middle East, and it is included in some of these uh, general civilization sequence courses, which would start with the Epic of Gilgamesh and go all the way through to uh, to Hegel, Marx, and beyond. Right, but is that in the U.S., in Europe, in well, the Middle in, East I, itself? I've seen it in the U.S. Actually, I, um, uh, I have seen it in some curricula in the United States. I cannot tell you where, because I really haven't looked at this uh, uh, recently, uh, most certainly it forms a component in the similar sequences at American universities in other places, for instance, the American University of Beirut, which has a civilization sequence compulsory to all undergraduates, the American University of Cairo, which has a similar kind of course, all of them, you know, inspired by the by the uh, Chicago and Columbia models, right? Uh, so yes, that's that's where it is. That's where it is. Okay. Well, hopefully we can give it some attention that it much deserves. And I should hope. I, wanna, I should hope so very much. I I want to say that's it for today. I want to thank Aziz Alazme for sharing his insights about Ibn Khaldun and Mukaddima and uh, his understanding and contribution to uh, world history. Uh, remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Christo Voinoff for his technical assistance. This is his swan song, and we're going to miss him. Uh, I also want to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.